Hello, and welcome to the Weaver on-chain podcast series. I'm your host, Tim Savage, and I lead Weaver's blockchain and digital assets practice. In this series, we dive into various topics in the blockchain industry, and each show features guest speakers who are deeply involved in this space. On this episode today, I'm thrilled to introduce our guest speaker, David Kerr. David is the principal of Calorie LLC. He has 10 years of experience in tax strategy, financial accounting, and risk advisory in the industries of gaming, telecommunications, and technology. He is highly experienced in advising on the tax treatment of digital assets, state and international tax compliance, and anti-money laundering provisions, mitigating regulatory risk, and is a leading mind on structuring of DAO entities. David, super thrilled to have you on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tim. It's good to be here. So as I always do in these shows, I just want to open it up with learning about how you got interested in this space and and where you are now. Yeah, well, you know, full disclosure, Tim and I worked together. You and I worked together at EY for a number of years. Um, And I feel like we missed the we missed the train uh, of a lot of our coworkers who were a lot more into the crypto investing um, um, than we were. and so, yeah, I started my career at uh, Ernst & Young. I worked in the gaming um, industry for a number of years in Las Vegas, which was obviously, in retrospect, hugely helpful for uh, just the time and place uh, around AML, KYC uh, requirements, because the, the, the casino industry at the time was plagued with a lot of money laundering schemes and there was a lot of um you know legislation targeting uh you know best practices operational functionality and so to be able to have that background without having kind of meaning to collect it from a crypto purpose was really helpful down the road i transferred to dallas um when the opportunity arose to to work in the telecom industry uh worked on a just a great client with a great team um uh, got to work with the, the EY's telecom sector leader, um, and you know Kent is uh, Kent Garrity is a, a tremendous mind in the tax world, um, and so to be able to work on the kind of projects that he was able to bring in at that level was just hugely influential for developing my skill set. And at some point, as I think we kind of all know, the 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 the, the job, um, the hours, the commitment, the time. Um, you know, you either stick with it or you, you leave and find something else. And so I uh, I left uh, a few years ago now and I didn't have much of a plan. We finished some big projects and I was moving to New York anyways. And so I thought it was a good time to uh, take a break having left EY after a pretty long run. Um, and, uh, you know, COVID happened. So that was uh, fun. Uh, it kind of changed my plans. Uh, I'd, I'd finished taking all the vacation that I accrued from, you know, tax reform and, and finishing out those projects. And so I started doing industry consulting in the areas where I had facility background contacts uh, for, you know, folks I had done work for previously, uh, not crypto related uh, for the most part. But one of my friends from law school, the, the kid I sat next to my first year for almost every class, uh, Miles Jennings at the time was working for Latham and Watkins. Um, he was heavily involved with clients in the crypto space. And he's eventually 
uh, became he re, he re, he relatively recently became the general counsel for A16Z, and I, I believe he's the head of decentralization there now, which is an expansion of that GC role. He brought to me a number of just you know bizarre. Uh, I'm sure your introduction to the space was similar. The first time you start hearing about the issues facing digital assets, especially when you start dealing with you know DAOs, which is kind of a, a, a wide open space from a regulatory perspective in terms of there not being a lot of clarity, not being a lot of guidance. Um, he started bringing issues to me that required you know significant research into you know potential treatment, um, but also a significant inquiry into what led to that situation in the first place. Uh, you really had to kind of unpack that these uh, organizations existed that were not necessarily typical structures. They didn't have management teams who to even contract with. Like really basic questions were, were very difficult. Um, and so for those who don't know, decentralized autonomous organizations are uh, a branch within DeFi. They're kind of wrapped up in a term called Web3 now. It's the mechanism for which you know entities operate through, uh, on the blockchain through smart contracts uh, and you know commonly governments to governance tokens that provide voting rights to how stores of those governance contracts or uh, governance tokens that have um, you know value that are maintained in a treasury that's controlled by the smart contracts are controlled through voting rights. And you know, that sounds a lot like equity on some level, but there's, you know, there's kind of an interplay between the securities law, the treatment of these things, their intended purpose, where it, it, equity is kind of the wrong way to look at it um, when you when you really dive in. Because what they don't transfer is uh, expectation of profits. They don't transfer member distributions. Uh, and that's not just the design of, of the DAOs themselves. Uh, from a technological or, 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 or ethos standpoint, there's also limitations on legality. Uh, if you start, you know, transferring tokens that give expectations of profits and you have control of the governance, the decision making, the voting, then you're really talking about a, an analog to stock. And so it's that lack of equity that kind of creates some really confusing questions around um, entity structuring around distributions of those tokens. The IRS has provided minimal guidance um, beyond, you know, non-regulatory authority saying that those, um, you know, any form of crypto asset, uh, virtual currency, uh, digital asset, is property for the purpose, purposes of U.S. taxation. And so that changes kind of the analysis of, of, of how you, you treat that from a legal standpoint from this evolution of an entity standpoint uh, and from a taxation standpoint. And so I started getting these, these, these crazy questions about you know, a treasury making a distribution, what the tax effects would be. Well, you know, these, these entities didn't have legal form. So you, know, you can't just you know, have a realizable tax event and then send a check to uh, you know, the US treasury and you know, it, I talk about this a lot, and I, I tend to talk about it geared towards um, the U.S. tax effect, because you know U.S. citizens are taxed on, on the worldwide income on an individual basis, and then uh, you know the, the the taxation of of uh, 
uh, you know, corporate structures is, is, is quite a bit different than, than the individual tax, um, you know, world. But without an entity form, you do have to revert back to that individual tax treatment. I mean, that's how it flows through. There's no entity uh, presenting different different rules. And so you have um, some pretty difficult U.S. tax questions. But I don't want to describe that complexity at the, um, you know, at the detriment of the international tax complexity, which exists as well. You know, a lot of these DAOs are created with U.S. individuals, uh, U.S. teams have pretty significant ties to the U.S. A lot of them aren't. A lot of them are created with no U.S. teams. And, you know, the, 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 the pool of people who participate in is a lot of times anonymous, but it's also worldwide. And so you have all of these just extraordinarily difficult questions of, you know, who controls the assets if the if, if these DAOs produce income? Is it being distributed? You know, from a U.S. security standpoint, distribution of income, member distributions is a pretty big problem from a security standpoint. But from, you know, a taxation standpoint, it's also an issue because you're looking at, you know, application of income tax. You've got individuals making contributions to these projects who are sitting in, in, in many taxing jurisdictions that have rules that go beyond income tax. You might have, you know, a VAT regime. You might have a state and local issue where you need to make a payment into, um, you know, a local uh, state and local fund around retirement planning or union due. I mean, the, interna the international tax complexity of the world is very difficult. And we have people sitting all over the world making contributions, getting value returned to them. Um, and so from a standpoint of the governance tokens themselves, they have a surprising amount of value considering they don't have a, a direct path to being income producing. Um, and that value comes in the form uh, for tax purposes is captured through, you know, capital recognition. You know, you pay capital gains on, on, on the difference in, you know, what you paid for it. Um, there's a lot of times you don't pay anything for it. A lot of these are done through free drops to encourage as wide a membership as possible. It's called an airdrop. The U.S. has provided some insight into how that's to be taxed. Um, and, you know, in worldwide, that is too. And, and so you have these huge questions of, of, you know, income tax and then tax reporting, right? Who's responsible for letting the governments, the various jurisdictions know about the activity how do you even apportion it? Like you start talking about DAOs and tax and getting into the the robust kind of complex tax world that you know sophisticated industries have have worked in for years, and you come up with just a number of, of, of problems, uh, permanent establishment issues, um, you know, dominion and control considerations, um, you know, ownership responsibility. You know, I wrote a paper on domestic entity structures and had to go back to legal form of, of you know, Section 61 of, of the IRC and start talking about ordinary income and uh, class. Uh, and that's not an area you expect to have to write a lot of novel research around. We're pretty well decided on that subject. And to kind of have to go back to the very beginning and start talking about, you know, tax verticals and, 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 and where you apply income tax, who's doing it, how you consider it. It was kind of an overwhelming amount of work. And so Miles and I wrote a paper 
uh, that, I, that I just referenced on the on the entity structure, we suggested a domestic entity form that would be capable of paying U.S. tax at an entity level and would meet the requirements for um, actual membership, for joining a DAO, for an organization. And, you know, we didn't suggest this for, for any one uh, type of DAO. One of the issues in the space is that DAOs um, is a very broad umbrella. Like within the context of what is a DAO is a tremendous amount of complexity um, because you know you've got the history of decentralized organizations. You've got the history of individuals uh, of the development of the blockchain and the technology that that does, the smart contracts, the functionality, the ability to have technical decentralization. Uh, you have organizations that build on top of that that have a way of you know utilizing the internet and the blockchain kind of as a hybrid to uh, achieve you know decentralization and autonomy and some kind of trade-off. And then you have these protocols that function as smart contracts that don't really need that much um, or even give that much control to their memberships to control what the protocol does. And so one of the hardest things about onboarding people into the space is that you know there are silly examples of DAOs and there's really bad examples of DAOs uh, that fail tremendously. And so there's no one answer to how a DAO should entity structure, how a DAO is taxed. Any of these questions um, really need to be broken up into the type of DAO. Do they plan on distributing income? Do they have real-world interaction? Where is that world a real-world interaction? Do they have employees? Do they want to have a bank account? Do they plan on providing health care? Um, is it, you know, uh, how decentralized are they? Um, you know, you start getting into all that kind of complexity around it and you realize that, you know, we talk about DAOs and, the, you know, the New York Times will write an article about DAOs or, you know, Elizabeth Warren will say something very critical about DAOs. And the reality is, you know, there's not one type of DAO. There's, there's, there's thousands of these things and each one of them has its own kind of unique properties. And so there's purists in the space who consider you know, the protocol-based DAO, I mean, you can make an argument, I think a strong argument, that Ethereum's a DAO. You know, that's, it's, it's very easy to say that's not a taxable, that doesn't have a taxable um, revenue stream. Uh, that's, you're looking at the change in value and the holder, like it, it follows a lot more along the lines of, of kind of a currency. Um, but then you come over to some of these DAOs that are more like social clubs that exist in the real world and they utilize the blockchain to kind of connect but they have control over their decision-making. That's a totally different set of facts. And then you have the investment DAOs that have to follow the creditor investor rules and have fewer than 100 people. Um, and they actually invest in property and pool their money together and expect to realize profit out of it. And so all of those have different entity considerations. All of those have different tax considerations. And so there's just a tremendous amount of complexity in the space around you know, what we're even talking about. And if you're not crypto native or crypto fluent, you're not interested in it, or you're coming to it, you know, from 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 another industry, it's very confusing because you know the first rule of tax, as you know, is you have to know your client, you have to know the industry, you have to know it well. Well, to onboard that level of complexity, that level of technical complexity, that level of entity complexity, that's not a read a couple of articles and you're there. That's to embed yourself in the space and really start to understand. 
what these different operations are. Well, if you don't do that from the outside in, this looks really bad because you're picking up inconsistent threads, you're picking up inconsistent takes because we utilize the same vocabulary to talk about all this difference. We talk about DAOs like they're one concept and we're importing years of history around decentralized organizations who have been looking for a home, you know, since centralization forms have kind of become the dominant governing form and the dominant industry form. And we're looking at the technology development and we're looking at all of these pieces. And quite frankly, you've got this, a fair amount of like libertarian anarchists in this space too, who are viewing a path to excluding the government and expanding privacy. Um, and on the design side, I think those people are, are, are great contributors. On the legal and accounting side, I find them to be intolerable because I think they're irresponsible. Um, and, and you have a lot of that in the space because that's who flocked to it early. And, um, and, and I think that also from the outside in makes it look a little less legitimate because you do have people in the space of significant clout in the space where they don't have clout anywhere else. Like they're not, they're not, um, you know, they're not capable of going back to a traditional industry and providing value there. What, what makes them valuable is they know the industry really well, but they may not know the law. They may not know the accounting. They may not know the rules. And anyone from an established industry, an established path, is going to kind of look on that with a little bit of skepticism. And I think that makes sense. Yeah, it's really hard to be able to tax an entity that is decentralized. I mean, that concept in and of itself is um, almost unfathomable because you've have, you've got these in, entities that anyone can participate in, right? And they, they transcend borders. They are literal, literal global entities, and it's very easy to immediately lock yourself into the smart contract and then are you a consumer or a customer of that that DAO, or uh, you know, are you actually participating in governance? And to what level are you participating in governance? And you know, I was just speaking at an event yesterday, and um, you know, when it comes up with question, when we have questions uh, surrounding tax, you know, I always say we have a lot more questions than we do have answers right now because we're trying to apply existing and old. Uh, law and tax regulation to these new things that just don't fit at all. And you, sometimes you get actually get into some unfavorable answers and it gets complex very quickly. And those are the challenges that we are seeing with these types of entities. But nonetheless, I think owls are, um, they're here to stay. They're extremely nascent in um, you know, their use cases, but they certainly do have a use case and they will only continue to grow. Maybe from a legal standpoint, could you help our listeners understand uh, what steps are being taken right now in the U.S. Uh, to help DAOs form their own identity in the legal space? Sure. Uh, it's, 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 it's unfortunate, quite frankly, that there's not been um, a ton of... of, of progress made well, it, it depends on your point of view there's been an education problem a lot of times um when 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 folks in the government talk about this space they conflate bitcoin with every other form of 
cryptocurrency. Like, there's no acknowledgement of the technological differences. There's no acknowledgement of the use case differences or the purpose it serves. And so you get some pretty blended arguments of Bitcoin, stablecoin, and then throw in some, you know, money laundering. Um, and so there's quite a bit of opprobrium. I mean, obviously some folks are supportive and some folks aren't. Um, but a lot of times even the support's not particularly knowledgeable. Um, and from a from a purpose of what the legislature is supposed to do, they're being a fan of crypto or not a fan of crypto, seeing the possibility or not, the criticisms of it or not, isn't the point. Their job is to provide effective legislation, uh, effective regulation, to come up with policies that make sense. There's a pretty fair critique that there's not been a ton of education accomplished yet, but I mean, it is making progress. It's getting better, and I think that's what you need to be patient about. But, you know, you've got one kind of uh, agency in the IRS that you look to for clarity, and they've provided almost no guidance on it because they don't have authority. You know, the commissioner of the IRS is asking the Congress to give uh, the IRS guidance that they can enforce because right now they don't have it and so they're comfortable drawing out the lines to where they feel they have support from the law and i think you know property treatment of, of crypto assets is a is a pretty safe line uh, even if it's not you know authoritative i mean it's sub-regulatory um but they can't get into the complexities they're not answering private letter rulings to give um information in advance because they don't have the answers and privately you know, off, not even off the record, but not in their official capacity. There are a lot of quotes about how they're frustrated, why they're frustrated, because they can't develop. And then you've got the SEC, who's kind of taken the leadership role on being the, the, the bastion of enforcement, but they're not providing wide-level instruction. The Dow report of the 2016 um, about the Dow, um, uh, kind of the, the very... We, we, a, a very poorly conceived, but also early, so forgivably so, technically deficient pro, uh, Dow project was the first one. And it involved direct investment, expectation of profits, so it broke a lot of rules. So the SEC put out a report called the Dow Report in 2017. That's kind of a really initial, that's where if you want to start getting the space, you got to read the Dow Report. Um, and so you know, that provided some degree of guidance about the securities concerns and opened up some of the doors to the taxation concerns. Um, but then the enforcement pattern that's come out of that has been rather hit or miss because, you know, there's some really bad offenders in this space. There's some dregs in this space, and you can't ignore that. Um, there's projects that are clear securities violations. There's projects that are clear um, schemes. And I think a lot of times there's a pressure for pro-crypto people to be permissive of that kind of activity and not call it out for what it is because we feel so isolated out on the island. We want to protect, we want, we don't want our, our criticisms to be misinterpreted. I come from a different school of thought. I think you criticize the, the, the bad projects, the, the rule breakers, um, you know, just because the lights are out on an intersection, you know, you might have some grace in crossing the street safely, but you don't get to go rob a bank because the lights were out. We know there's things we can't do. We don't totally know what we can do. We have to be responsible to the points you had mentioned about the difficulties and kind of trying to figure some of this out. Some of the results are bad. 
um, when you apply the old laws that weren't conceived for. That's the reality. That's the difficulty. That's the job. Finding those answers is, you know, what the job is. Asking for new laws, like pushing for new laws, lobbying, informing, educating. That's the job, too. What you can't do is take advantage of the situation in a way that's, you know, fraudulent, that's unfair, that, that, that's, that's, that's reprehensible from an ethical, moral standpoint. And that's being done. And that's provided an easy source of criticism for anyone who wants to look at this as being uh, a fraudulent space. There's certainly, you know, not technically Ponzi schemes, because that's actually a pretty precise definition, but a lot of pyramid-shaped ownership interests do occur, um, and, and, and they deserve to be criticized, and, and, and a lot of times they aren't. And the SEC has gone after, you know, a lot of times uh, projects tried to be compliant. They took their offering to the SEC. They tried to work with them. They got nowhere. And that put them at an economic disadvantage where other projects didn't ask, did stuff that was much, much worse than, was, than, than, than could possibly have come out of the ones trying to be compliant, follow the rules. And it's almost like they were awarded. And the SEC has targeted projects that aren't the worst offenders. And it seems to be that they're regulating based off of an enforcement strategy instead of an advisory strategy. And so that's a really negative environment to be in. And so, so, so Gary Gensler gets a lot of criticism in this space for being inconsistent and being, um, you know, just to, to kind of have an agenda that goes beyond um, proper regulation or even the authority of the SEC. I mean, the CFTC would certainly be a lot more, uh, and, and they've had some, 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 some investigations, some enforcement actions too, but not nearly as many. OFAC has too. I think we can all agree that, you know, evading sanctions is bad and the work that OFIC does is very important, but that the way the SEC has handled it has been uh, ripe for criticism and criticism that they frankly deserve. Um, because, uh, you know, we as U.S. citizens on the U.S. side, since it's the U.S. government, and, you know, the, the U.S. laws apply all over the world. You know, one of the things people do is they go regimeless, they go to the Caymans, because they go, oh, we want to go as far away from the SEC as possible. And it's like, it doesn't matter where you're based. It matters if it's in the hands of U.S. citizens. That's where the law comes in. And it is. So there's nowhere you can run across the globe, across the globe if you have U.S. Um, you know, ownership of, of, of these, the SEC has some authority to regulate it, uh, these tokens. And so we deserve fair rules that consider the technology that allow for this to happen. Um, and, that, and, that, and that's the opposite of what has happened. I mean, the fact that the IRS has provided such minimal guidance over this period of time is, is, is reprehensible uh, from, from an absence of legislator, like effective legislation, because we don't, we're not getting better at what we need to know how to do. Um, and selective enforcement's not helping people know what works and what doesn't work. And so we keep rehashing these, you know, Landreth, Howie, to some extent Reeves. We keep parsing over um, these notices that, you know, define property and airdrops in a way that's not even technically correct, what an airdrop is in, in, in the common usage in the space. And we kind of keep waiting for the day that BEPS 2, uh, BEPS 1, OECD base erosion worldwide taxation comes into play. And we start dealing with not just, you know, the importance of paying tax somewhere, but actually paying tax in a portion to where the activity that's resulting in the taxable income comes from. 
And that's a complexity that a worldwide organization um, that really can't attribute or apportion income in an effective manner is, is, is going to be faced with that requires sophisticated solutions. And when you look to how the IRS has developed, and I don't, and you can't blame them for this, right? They're not in control of how they're budgeted. They're not in control of, of, of the, the ultimate decision making. They're, they're they they are a, a branch of the executive, but they're subject to legislative authority. I mean, they need authority to act. So it's it's easy to, to dunk on the IRS in this, and that's not a fair. There's a lot of smart people at the IRS who do really good work. Um. What's needed, though, is clarity in how all of this works. And we have relied on a system of enforcement of self-reporting, W-2s, uh, 1099s, 1099, like all the different types of 1099s. You know, there's a gap in taxation wherever you don't self-report because the government doesn't get a heads up. There's an expected uh, you know, taxable event, and they don't know the number. They can't match it. And that's where the tax doesn't get paid. Well, right now, there's not a whole lot of reporting in this space. There's not clarity of how that reporting would work. And so it's very easy to presume that a significant amount of this activity is not being reported. And so, you know, the IRS is sending out a lot of John Doe letters um, to people. They're using a lot of the power of the subpoena they have to, you know, wherever they can get a hold of uh, people who've had contacts with uh you know one of these exchanges that they can get a hold of they, they, they've been pulling as much information that as possible and sending out enforcement letters and trying to kind of claw back that income tax gap but the reality is you know the blockchain presents certain obstacles and benefits for nefarious uh, actors and also for taxing authorities like it is a ledger now there's a lot more complexity, as you know, as a as an accountant, um, than just having a ledger. Like there's a reason why 10Ks are 30 pages, and the reason we use double entry accounting, uh, double journal entry accounting. And so a ledger is not all that helpful for all purposes, but it's certainly a, a very good way of saying tracking income, tracking ownership. But if we match the AML KYC to the onboarding and offboarding of money, there's there's paths developed that make this make a lot more sense and um trying to turn everything which we did with the 6050i $10,000 crypto reporting addition to the infrastructure bill turning everything into a police state where all we do is tell the government every time we do any financial transaction of <laughs> minimal amounts so that they have access to it you know it's not like they're sitting there with the NSA supercomputers the IRS is not going to be able to do anything with that I mean, the 6050i was much more a product of anti-terrorism. It was much more a product of enforcement actions around criminality. It came out of the Patriot Act. And so the idea that that's some part of the tax collection, that's like, no, the IRS is responsible for getting the information, is one of the weirdest changes in law ever. They took the Form 8300 out of the, 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 the tax code and they put it under the Bank Secrecy Act so that they could strip the taxpayer protection from sharing that information that's how this happened back in 2002 2001 um they they the 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 legislature moved it congress moved it so that it was outside the scope of the protections and you could make disclosures and so that went to state governments that went to federal governments that went to the nsa went to the fbi i mean that's who's using this information so it's not a tax form 
Um, and so turning us into, you know, a police state where our privacy is what becomes the source of, you know, tax payments isn't really within the, you know, what, what one would consider to be America, what one would consider to be freedom. There's certainly a need for reporting mechanisms, but you would think a taxing agency, regulatory agencies would take the information found on the blockchain and try to find technological jumping off points where they can have a more precise view into tracking the money in a way that makes sense, developing that next level of tax enforcement, developing that next level of thinking, using the technology as it exists and understanding it would be how, you know, any reasonable person would design a tax structure, uh, a tax reporting structure. And instead, we've doubled down on the fact that every time we do anything, we have to provide the government with what we did uh, so that they can know that we're not having tax problems, uh, evasion problems. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, maybe starting back with the the challenges we're having with with regulators, not just the IRS and SEC, but also the CFTC um, and things like FATCA and FinCEN, you know, that, that kind of reporting, especially if, if you're yeah. a U.S. citizen and have foreign assets, those are also some challenges. And I, I think it's very unfortunate for, as you had pointed out, um, certain people or organizations trying to comply and um, you know, self-report and then them being challenged and um, having issues with that. I think it's maybe the pain of just pioneering a new space. There's always people with good intentions who um, don't weather the storm. And then there are people and bad actors who uh, survive. But I think as a whole, the industry is growing and changing where it needs to go. But you're right. It starts with education. We need uh, our policymakers and regulators to understand what the space is and then understand the technology so that they can leverage it and instead of try to um, kill it or squash it, you know, utilize it for that's right. Um, that's the, right. The next iteration. Yeah. Right, exactly. It's 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 ledger based accounting essentially, yeah. information exchange and why not, you know, develop on top of that? And I think that will happen. And the education is happening in podcasts like this, right? Having robust conversations. There's funding, yeah, there's certainly been funding measures where the IRS has reached out to contractors to utilize, you know, what information can be taken from the blockchain to develop that next gen. It's certainly being done. Um, but, but yeah, the the doubling down on the max enforcement um, has obviously been interesting when there's no regulatory guidance being offered at the same time. And yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, once we do have good policy and regulation, which does kind of fly in the face of the whole concept of decentralization, but um and there's a lot of naysayers out there who, again, as you pointed out, are very privacy-centric, maybe anti-government a little bit. Um, but to think that you can have this multi-trillion dollar industry and several different classes within that 
and organizations being built on top of these uh, or, or within this new industry, to think that that is separate from human and social experience just doesn't seem reasonable to me. It just doesn't seem realistic or pragmatic. Um, so to some extent, there's there's some give and take with, you know, to, to what level of privacy does have to be, you know, do you have to sacrifice in order to grow and allow this this industry to thrive? And that's the balance that needs to be defined. And I think it needs yeah. to happen quickly. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, when you got to think about it from the standpoint of, you know, even though what I'm saying is, you know, critical, the academic work, the suggested work that I put forward in the community is conceptualizing a U.S. model that brings worldwide income into the U.S. in a corporate entity tax structure to pay taxes in the U.S. And so it's not credible to paint that kind of plan as revolutionary. Like that is, I'm not suggesting going to the Caymans. No, there's times to go to the Caymans. I'm not suggesting re re remaining regimeless. Now there's times to remain regimeless. It depends on what the technology function as functions as, and what the economic benefits are and how they're distributed. But in a lot of sense, a lot of times, I think the right play is to pay tax, to be good faith, to act within the fact we don't know what the rules are, but we know some general principles. And if it were as easy as forming a Cayman entity to avoid base erosion, then I'm pretty sure we would have done that on the corporate side already. Like, like that's not viable. You don't build out. You can't just decide that you're, you're taking a pool of money going to a, a, a favorable tax jurisdiction and you've covered all of your bases. That's not how any of these rules have worked. So I agree with you that that's not no matter how libertarian or or or, or uh, you know, anti-tax, you can't tax the Internet, that ethereal argument. No matter how much you believe that, the reality is that the taxation is arbitrary, but it also exists. And it's part of what responsible business looks like. And if you want to be around for for longer, you need to comport within some semblance of the rules, and you have to be a good faith actor. But you know, we also look at the fact that you know Web two, the internet was 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 centralized very quickly. It's been privatized. It's controlled. The money that's gone into it, we've all been turned into you know, the product, our data, our, and, 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 and the technology of decentralization is the path out of that in a pretty easy to understand worldview. Now, there's obviously critics of it. People disagree vehemently. Um, but to me, that's what's so exciting about the technology is not that Web3 decentralization is going to replace centralized processes. It's that we'll finally be at a point where when centralized uh, products and, 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 and technology makes the most sense, we use that. And it'll interact with decentralized technology and products and services that are built in networks when that makes the most sense. So we have the opportunity to build a more free internet because Web1, the, the, the HTML, like the, you know, the, the, the baseline um, foundation of the internet is decentralized. It just didn't get built up because these centralized platforms got built on top of it, utilized that technology, built out the services, built out the networks, built out the network effects. And then, you know, when you look at it from a tax standpoint, too, worked very hard to make sure they didn't pay tax 
on that. So to, to say that the Web3 decentralization is the tax avoidance model is kind of funny when you look at the Web2 platform technology companies who were the, at least the biggest um, uh, and most obvious use cases for base inversion in the first place. Like, there's always a desire to not pay tax, to always pay less tax. And, and, and kind of to your point, that's if you look at the history of human nature, tax avoidance, tax uh, evasion is, is something that you have to deal with. And so you have to, one, when you're not being regulated very closely, it's still probably in your best interest to conform to the reality that taxation exists and be a good citizen in the world and try to participate. And two, expect that it's going to catch up at some point and that enforcement measures are going to, the level of which enforcement comes is going to be in some way based off of the level of invasion, uh, of evasion. And so if, if, if people do work responsibly and try to demonstrate a path to, to building something that can still work within our conceptualization of taxation, and, and obviously we need new rules and consideration around both reporting and what that tax should be, and you can't look at the, the, the treaty, the international world's an uproar right now over trying to figure out where the allocation of digital assets should be. That's a conversation we all need to, to impart in good faith. The answer to that can't be, it doesn't get taxed anywhere. That can't be our baseline. Um, whereas you can make the case that true technology that operates in HTML doesn't necessarily, or something like Ethereum, doesn't necessarily have a tax uh, case you made for it as an entity level or the use of it might. So you, so you really have to get into the technology and figure out how it fits into our existing tax model. And that's where um, that's where the onboarding, the education, that's where all this is so important because finding out those answers and not treating every piece of technology like it's the same uh, is a huge part of, of, of figuring out best practices as an advisor, best practices as a uh, in one who interacts with the space, and best practices as a regulator. That's well said. And again, we have certainly have more questions than we do have answers. Uh, hopefully, we do have decent to good policy rollout here in the next, I would say, one to two years. I was actually um pleased with Biden, President Biden's EO in that I think I went into it thinking, oh gosh, this could be really bad for the industry. And then very was very relieved whenever it was more of, hey, let's study this and, and at least be receptive to um, how we should go about creating policy. And we'll see here in the next five, six months what what the conclusions are and, and what framework is going to be developed. But uh, I am hoping that it, it will be more investor friendly and still allow the technology to evolve and propagate throughout our world. Um, and in the meantime, maybe give the IRS some uh, better clarity on and definitions of digital assets, because to your point, Bitcoin is much different than Ethereum, which is much different than you know, a, a DAO or any other type of type of DeFi application or product. Yeah, then and, the complexity within DAOs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and I think much credit needs to be given to organizations like the Blockchain Association and Coin Center for the work that's being done on the education front. Um, 
you know, it's funny when you know a topic well, you sometimes disagree. And so a lot of times what I disagree with the most is maybe the tax policy that comes out of the crypto groups in terms of it being realistic. Because I'm very wary of what would happen if we open up too generous of a potential loophole around the taxation of crypto. When you look at the advisory maturity of other industries who can jump through those loopholes a lot better, take none of the the, the fallout for it existing and, you know, make decisions around their business structure to take advantage of it. And that's not what, you know, we want. And so there's always that room for like taxes, kind of its own tricky planning beast. But in terms of, you know, taking the time to educate policymakers, staffers, taking the meetings and getting that, that, that change and, um, you know, tone at the Washington DC level, I think our advocacy groups have done a very good job around, you know, helping shape the conversation. Um, and certainly, you know, you had mentioned FinCEN earlier, the AML KYC work, they've been very receptive to learning the technology and kind of working around, you know, the money service provider um, rules and when they'd be appropriate and how they implement. And I think that's a good model to follow for maybe some of the other, um, you know, limitations currently. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, and I think this is where I would disagree with a lot of people in, in, in the crypto space, is that if, it, if you want to give it all of the elements of a security and then you don't want to regulate it, well, what do you think is going to happen when that happens? Yeah, I mean, you know, we have regulated <laughs> markets for a reason. <laughs> it's the question of like a DAO again. I mean, if you have a DAO that goes out and purchases, purchases a professional football team, well, what happens if the smart contract just fails all of a sudden and then you've got billions of dollars that just disappear or get locked in this network that are unrecoverable, someone's going to be mad. Who's responsible for that? And those are big questions that we have to answer. Yeah, and that's a really good um, point, probably a good, a good wrapping up point uh, for us because uh, I know we got time sensitive, uh, keep these short and tight. Um, <laughs> it is Web3, right? That's, I mean, that's what, even though that's kind of a branding thing, and sometimes that gets made fun of because it's, you know, it's kind of corny, but there's, there's a benefit to having a phrase to call the period of technology you're talking about so you can start tying, you know, thought around it. And so uh, it's not World3. And so you mentioned sports ownership and, and, and owning real property. Well, the mechanisms of this technology work better when we're dealing with internet-based technology. The real-world application does kind of skew towards what's the blockchain portion of that versus the decentralized, like decentralized organizational part of that. And I know that there's a parallel and that the technology is what supports that kind of decentralized group. But yeah, there's a reason you don't get into business with a decentralized organization when it comes to the whole, you know, one neck to choke, someone's responsible philosophy. And so a lot of these projects that get the most buzz, and I'm excited about some of them more than others. I like the team sometimes. I get excited by the vision. But at the end of the day, real world ownership, real business decision, a lot of that's a very difficult, um, would be very difficult because in a way that the, the 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 online technological side of it's not, because it doesn't have that same management complexity, that same ownership. That the, the decisions are more aligned with what the technology is intended to do, and thus it's easier to conceive of the value of those kinds of pro projects. So again, these DAOs, even blockchain tech itself, still forming its identity and figuring out where these applications are and and where they best 
put forward. And that's what is exciting. So we are at time. Um, thank you again for being on the show. I'm sure we'll have you on again so we can have a big, long, robust discussion. For our viewers, um, how can they get in touch with you if, if they are interested in uh, consultation with you? You know, at this point, I'm not really taking on new clients. Uh, I'm in that kind of good place for a consultant where I've got enough work uh, in, in the pipe to be busy for a very long time. Uh, but I'm always happy to talk the subject. You know, I take, I, I have, I'm fortunate to have a lot of, you know, various funding mechanisms, a lot of emerging media outreach based, grant, like writing grants and research grants, uh, you know, obviously, um, you know, the production of ideas. And so with that responsibility comes educating. So if someone were to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm always, you know, happy to take a message and set a call and talk through the space. I, I probably take four or five calls a week just to kind of people who are interested. I mean, obviously that doesn't scale up super well, so there's going to be a day that that stops. But for right now, it's it's working good. It's nice to talk to people in the community, nice to talk about projects and kind of share ideas and just kind of, you know, live in the digital world we live in and actually talk. Because you can't meet people at social events right now still to some extent. Travel's hard. Um, and so, yeah, taking those calls is kind of knocking on someone's office door and just chatting about what's going on. And, you know, sometimes I can refer them to someone who can help uh and or, or you know talk to a problem in a way that gives them a different perspective or they teach me something so so yeah i, I would say twitter is probably the most reliable way of, of getting in contact with me all right sounds good we'll drop your contact information and, and your twitter um and the link when we post it on the website so thank you again all for right, being on the show and good conversation right. today. have a good one